Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, Dr. Walker has been on vacation this week, and he will be back next Sunday. Daniel chapter 1, we're doing one study in this book. Our scripture is the whole chapter, a text that reminds us that as Daniel in exile faced the situation of dual citizenship, so do all Christians. Daniel was a citizen of Jerusalem who spent his life living in Babylon from his teen years into his 80s. Christians, likewise, are citizens of heaven, of the new Jerusalem, while also living on earth with earthly citizenship. We are citizens of a community and a nation while still seeking to live true to our heavenly calling from God. Hear the word of God, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. 
At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. The other year, I got to talking to one of the Burmese refugees who had been regularly attending worship at our church, and I asked him what it was like to come to America. And he told me it was very, very hard. Hard to come here and hard to be here. He surprised me to go on to say that he had just called his brother in Southeast Asia and said to him, Don't come, it's just too hard. I'm sure he was talking about the cultural adjustment, the language, the finances, and having various jobs that were very hard. And I'm not sure if his brother ever came. It was just very different. It wasn't home. What is it like to live in exile, to be a sojourner in a strange land? For the Christian, that is not merely an exercise of imagination because even though the hostility of the world is more subtle in the West where we live, still it is very powerful. In many parts of the world, Satan's primary tactic is, is violent persecution and oppression of God's people. But here it is more to seduce and deceive us with all the allures of this world so that we forget God and that God is rarely in our thoughts. As citizens of heaven, what do we learn from, from Daniel chapter 1 in our text this morning in living as exiles, as sojourners in this world, with all the pains and sorrows that come in this fallen world, with all the unfulfilled, unfulfilled longings and dreams in this life, and with the pressure that's constantly there to be squeezed into the mold of this present evil age. I want us to see three things we need to know, we need to learn from this text. The first is the sovereignty of God over the circumstances of our lives. The second is the constant temptation to think and to live like the world. And the third is the faithfulness of God to his people in their exile. First of all, then, God's sovereignty over the circumstances of our lives. We need to know this truth. And it comes out very clearly in verses 1 and 2 of our text. Verse 1 describes the situation that Daniel faced in terms of human action and responsibility. 
And verse 2 describes it in terms of God's ultimate sovereignty over all these things. Verse 1 tells us, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This first siege and defeat of Jerusalem by Babylon took place in 605 B.C., That's when the first wave of exiles were taken into captivity to Babylon. And Daniel and his friends would have been part of that first wave. Jerusalem was not destroyed at this point. It was defeated but made a puppet kingdom of Babylon. Later, there were further waves of exile in 597 B.C. And then in 587, the last wave when Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed and burned. Not a stone left standing, really. Terrible destruction, horrific human suffering brought about by this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. So there was human responsibility, human action, evil human action. But verse 2 tells us the ultimate cause of the exile. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Three times in this chapter we see that phrase, and the Lord gave. Here in verse 2, and then in verse 9, where God gave Daniel favor. And then in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill. Here, back in verse 2, we're told that God gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. It was God's sovereignty over all of these actions. It was the fulfillment of God's long-promised judgment on the nation because of their persistent and willful rebellion against God over many generations. And the Lord gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But notice, as part of this exile, we see that there are people that are involved with this. At the end of verse 3, both he, the, the king commanded them to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, and these youths who were without blemish of good appearance and so forth. Daniel and his friends were part of this group of youths of the royal family and of the nobility. It's interesting, about 200 years beforehand, Isaiah had prophesied to King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, about what would happen now in Daniel's day when Isaiah said, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, speaking to Hezekiah the king, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you shall be taken away. Speaking about descendants from Hezekiah. Daniel may not have been of the royal house, but it is very likely that he was part of the nobility, the aristocracy, carried into exile in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken through Isaiah. So we see very clearly that the exile was a human action, but it was also the sovereign will of God. I want us to stop and think what it would have been like for Daniel and many others to be torn away from their homeland, from all that was familiar, from really the city of God on earth and to be taken to 
a pagan land, to be marched by their captors to Babylon, never to return. We'll see that their descendants return, but Daniel would have been in his 80s when Cyrus would eventually issue the decree for the Jews to be able to return to Jerusalem. Now he was probably, at this point, in his early teens, a young man, a youth. What was the impact of this terrible dislocation on Daniel? Did he curse his God? Did he curse the God of Israel? Did he claim that the circumstances of his life were not fair, that he couldn't trust God now because life was too hard? Well, I'm sure these thoughts of unbelief might have been a temptation to him and to his friends. But Daniel continued to walk with God in a difficult place. He and his friends continued to trust in their sovereign God who had called them to live for him and to walk with him even in these circumstances as exiles. One of the most common favorite verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 29:11. Some of you, I'm sure, know that by heart, and you've seen it on posters and cards. But do you know that Jeremiah 29, that chapter is addressed to the exiles in Babylon, and it tells them to, to build houses, to settle down, to have families, to work hard, to work for the welfare of the nation that's taken them into exile, and to even pray for that nation. Daniel probably would have known about that letter from Jeremiah. Maybe you know that Jeremiah 29.10 says that when the 70 years are completed, God will bring them back to Jerusalem. Speaking again of the sovereign purposes of God. And then there's that familiar verse, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Very encouraging words, and I'm sure Daniel would have taken those words to heart. The New Testament makes it clear that Christians, likewise, will always be sojourners and exiles in this world. No matter what century you live in, no matter what country you live in, there's always going to be this sense that the people of God are out of step with the world. And yet we are called to love and serve and pray for the community of our earthly citizenship. And and we in America count ourselves greatly blessed to be in a land where there is such freedom of worship and such little persecution over decades and hundreds of years. But we will never feel completely at home in one sense because we are citizens of God's heavenly city. And this first point tells us This is God's sovereign purpose for his people, that we would dwell as sojourners, as exiles. Don't be surprised that you feel out of place in this world. Don't think it's strange that your faith in Christ causes you to be out of step with your friends and your peers, at your jobs, in your schools, in your neighborhoods. Daniel lived out of a knowledge of a certainty that the circumstances of his life, no matter how difficult, were part of God's purposes for his growth in godliness, for his witness to the true God, and the exact arena 
God was sovereign over where God had placed him to live and to serve throughout his life for the glory of God. And that same calling applies to you and to me. What do we need to live lives of faith in Christ in an alien world, a world that is frequently a place of disheartening experiences, of pain and losses, of broken relationships, of tears, a place of regular temptation to forget God and to ignore his word? We need to know deeply that our faithful God is loving and sovereign over the circumstances of our lives, and he is with us in our sojourn on this earth. But secondly, we see the constant temptation to think and to live like the world in verses 3 through 7. The constant temptation to think and live like the world. What we see unfold in verses 3 through 7 is this very elaborate uh, reorientation plan or indoctrination plan of the Babylonian court and of the king to make these youths from Israel to be Babylonians. We see three aspects of their preparation or indoctrination over these three years. Number one, their worldview. Number two, their dependence. Number three, their identity. Worldview, dependence, identity, very fundamental things to all of us in the way we live. Let us look how they were sought to be indoctrinated. First, their worldview. At the end of verse 4, these youths were uh, to be taught in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, the fact that these young men submitted to this three-year course of study was not sinful. In and of itself, it was not wrong for them to abide with it and to work hard in it. In fact, we, we find that they did not refuse. Uh, they did not, for example, say, we're not going to do this, put us to death, like later in the book when they won't bow to the great idol and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the fiery furnace. And as it turns out, we see that these four surpass all others in their knowledge. That's given to them as a blessing from God. He enables them to do that. But we must not think that this educational track was intended to be neutral in any way, shape, or form. No, it was intended to turn them into Babylonians in every way that they would think like Babylonians and not like Israelites, that they would worship like Babylonians and not like Israelites. The goal was that Babylonian myths and teachings and false gods would take the place of Scripture and the true God in these young people's thinking and in their worldview. Think of these four young men as they immerse themselves in the literature of Babylon as they did so, they would have to work hard not to be fundamentally redirected away from a biblical worldview. And that is no small thing. Think of today's colleges and universities, especially secular ones, but even in Christian ones, you will find this to be the case, how easy it is for Christian young people to find it very easy to be swept along with all the newest fads and philosophies that are not based on scriptural truth and actually have that way they think lead them more and more to live lives that forget God 
I'm reminded of the Scottish Presbyterian pastor, John Witherspoon. Maybe you've heard that name. He was the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was brought over from Scotland to become the president of the College of New Jersey, as it was called at the time, which later became Princeton University. That was before the Revolutionary War, and Witherspoon turned out to have a wide influence on many of our founding fathers. In fact, James Madison was one of his students, the author, the primary author of our Constitution. I mention Witherspoon because one of the innovations that he brought with him to Princeton, to the College of New Jersey, was to expose the student body to viewpoints that Witherspoon considered dangerous and false in order that these students' biblical mindset would be strengthened by these interactions. So, for example, he had them study philosophers such as David Hume, another Scottishman, so that uh, they would be able to understand where Hume went very wrong in his secular philosophy. That's the kind of thing that Daniel and his friends would have had to do. Yes, study biblical uh, Babylonian literature, but to to study through a biblical lens, to always be evaluating based on a biblical worldview. But then in verse 5, we see another aspect of their indoctrination. This concerned their dependence. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. This issue came down to in whom would they ultimately put their trust and allegiance? Who would be their true Lord? Would it be the Lord Nebuchadnezzar or would it be the Lord God? These four young men saw their daily provision of food as a test of their trust. And we see in verses 8 through 16, I'm not going to go through all that point by point, how Daniel and all of them resolved not to eat the king's food and how in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and his request was granted. He was allowed to be on this diet of vegetables and water. And the whole section could be really uh, a case study in biblical peacemaking as we see Daniel come to these two officials with humility and yet with resolve and directness and and certainly praying to his God and God blessed his efforts. Now, what was primarily the problem with the king's food? Well, it may have been something to do with the Jewish dietary law. It may have been that it was offered to pagan gods. Probably not either of those. Some hold that view. Uh, Part of the reason that it probably wasn't the fact that it had been offered to other gods is because the vegetables and grains had probably been offered to to pagan gods as well. It was certainly not that Daniel thought the king's food was unhealthy because later in chapter 10, when Daniel's an old man, Uh, we see that Daniel is regularly eating delicacies and meats and drinking wine. And in that chapter, he fasts from those things. And that's Daniel in his maturity. There are different views about this, but the best explanation, I think, for Daniel's resolve not to eat the king's food is that Daniel and his friends see this as a matter of their ultimate trust and allegiance. They are standing on the truth that their dependence is on God and not on the king. Notice at the end, after this period of time, when they stand before the king, 
Apparently, the king doesn't even know that they had not, they, they had not been on his special diet. That's been kept hidden from the king. He thinks his plan has been very successful in every way. Only the two officials seem to know. Daniel and his friends are privately asserting that their true provider and sustainer is God. It was a matter of conscience for them. And often, young people especially, it is important that you take a stand in your youth for the things of God, because those often have wide, long-term effects on your walk with the Lord. We might ask ourselves, in what are we ultimately trusting? We could think of our bank accounts, our education, our jobs, our own strength and resources, the government. Uh, It's not wrong to have these things as lesser trusts, so to speak. But Jeremiah 17.5 declares, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. These young men were resolved that their hearts not turn away from a primary trust in their Lord, their God. They were declaring that, that their trust was in the Lord. Well, the final form of indoctrination, the third one, was their identity. In verses 6 and 7, we see that they are given new names. They're given Babylonian names. <clears throat> Interestingly, their Hebrew names were all declarations of their identity being founded in God. So, Daniel meaning God is my judge, Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, Mishael, who is what God is, Azariah, the Lord is a helper. But instead of their Hebrew names, they've now been given Babylonian names, and these Babylonian names all all contain forms of the various false gods of Babylon. These young men certainly ended up using both their names in some way. They had dual identities. Their Babylonian masters and friends, I'm sure, used their Babylonian names. But among themselves, they preserved their Hebrew names. It says something about their identity is rooted in God. They preserve their true identity as believers in the God of Israel. And in fact, it's an interesting point in chapter 6, that famous story when, when Daniel's been in the lion's den all night, and in the morning the king is anxious to see whether Daniel has survived, and the den is opened up, and the king calls out to him. He calls out using his Hebrew name, Daniel. A, a very revealing fact, Daniel had spent the rest of his life in Babylon, but his worldview, his dependence, his identity remained rooted in his God. What does this principle say to you and to me as as exiles on earth? Doesn't it mean that even though we live on earth and we respect and we honor our earthly citizenship, yet we know we have a more foundational allegiance and identity and worldview. We belong to Jesus Christ, and we have been bought with his precious blood. And so we must seek the Lord for his strength, for his grace, just as God gave favor and grace to Daniel and his friends that, uh, that God would give us wisdom to live daily in a world that is always pressing against our trust. 
and that often undermines our biblical worldview in very subtle ways and that tempts us regularly to root our identity in lesser things, things that may be good and fine in and of themselves, but they are not ultimate. Instead of finding our identity in Jesus Christ alone, we live just as Daniel and his friends did, as sojourners who need to always be maintaining our worldview and our identity in Christ. How do we do that? One strong implication from our text is that we need the body of Christ. Haven't we all found and felt that during this coronavirus time? We need the community of the saints. Daniel had his three close friends. I'm sure they encourage each other in the faith. So it is when we meet regularly for worship, when we, when we speak and sing together of our true home and the glory to come, we are reminded again and again of our new life in Christ and our heavenly citizenship that we share in Christ. I've often heard that American citizens living abroad celebrate July 4th with an, an enthusiasm and an, with a zeal that's rarely matched in the United States. I don't know if that's true or not. didn't seem true last night when there were about seven fireworks displays going on around our house at the same time, but let's say it is. I wonder if that's because as foreigners living in a different country, they probably feel a bond and a solidarity of wanting to celebrate their shared citizenship. So it is in corporate worship and fellowship, we as believers experience weekly, regularly, a reorienting of our hearts to our heavenly home and our heavenly citizenship and our shared life in Christ. Well, finally, our third point we see today is what we need, we need to see and know the faithfulness of God to his people in exile. We see that in verses 17 to 21. I won't read all of those, but we see the end of the story where in verse 17, God gave these youths learning and skill and Daniel. He gave understanding and all visions and dreams and they surpassed everyone else in the court in their knowledge of these things. What do we need as sojourners? Above all, we need to know that our God is faithful to give us grace and to sustain us in our earthly journey. The favor of God is with these young men. Not only did they shine at the court, but they also did this amazingly while remaining true to the God of Israel. No small thing in a pagan environment. But we especially want to see God's faithfulness in the final verse of chapter 1. You may think it's just a postscript there. It says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. As I mentioned, the first year of King Cyrus, who was the Medo-Persian king that conquered Babylon really without a shot, and so defeated them and became the emperor of it all, he issued the decree in the, in the first year of his reign. Second uh, Chronicles 36 points this out, verses 22 to 23, this wonderful decree that the Jews are able to return home. 
And so this verse is not simply a bare statement of the fact that Daniel was still still around at that point in his 80s, most likely, 70 years after he and his companion were taken into exile. No, this verse is really a declaration and a concluding statement about the keeping power of God, keeping his people in this pagan land for all those years, and not just to to barely survive, but as the rest of the book of Daniel shows, to be a vital witness to the true God and to stand boldly in his name again and again. God was faithful to his people through all the trials and tribulations that they would endure. And so the message of Daniel is we must seek the wisdom and the courage that Daniel had. But above that, even beyond that, even more, the message is our God is faithful to his people who have been purchased by the ultimately faithful one, Jesus Christ, who during his time of exile on this earth was perfect and flawless unto death on the cross for us and who died and rose again to give us the victory. We stand in him. Are you a sojourner? Have you become an exile? The way you become a sojourner is that you trust in Jesus Christ. You become united to him through faith in him and he gives you his righteousness. He bears your sins in his place that he took for you on the cross and he gives you everlasting life in him. Have you become a sojourner? Have you identified with Jesus Christ? It cannot only be outward. It must be inward. It must be faith in your heart as you trust in his word. And if you have come to know Christ, the question I ask you to consider as we conclude is, how is he calling you this week to live in exile here in the circumstances of your life? He is always training and teaching and blessing his children exactly where he has sovereignly put them. If he could put Daniel sovereignly in the Babylonian court, then you have to believe he's put you just where he has you this week. There are applications for each one of us. What is your true comfort? What is your highest joy? Where do you face the cost this week of following Jesus Christ? Where are you placing your security? May the Holy Spirit speak to you and apply the word of God to your life in specific applications as you walk with him this week. I leave you with the words of Hebrews 13 at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him, that is Christ, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Amen. Father, we pray for your help. We acknowledge our weakness and our need. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus in which we stand And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We know that that is certain because Christ's work is sure. Fortify us with your word and by your spirit to go forth trusting you and bearing witness to your great salvation. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. 
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.